Hey everybody, it's Mark and welcome back to Article Club where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. We took last month off, but here we are in January and I'm really excited that we're going to be discussing this Sunday the article Good Mother by Sierra Crane Murdoch. Um, it was one of my favorite pieces of all of last year. It's just so well written. Uh, I just reread it. It's just really great. So hopefully if you haven't read it, I definitely encourage you to do so. Um, I'm also excited to have you listen to this interview that Sarai and I had with Ms. Murdoch a couple weeks ago. Um, she's wonderful. Um, obviously, she's a great writer, but I also really appreciated how intimately and transparently Ms. Murdoch spoke with us. Sarai, obviously, is always wonderful as well. Um, I don't want to give anything away about the interview because, obviously, I want you to listen to it, but we talked about a number of things, including how does it feel to be a Pulitzer Prize finalist, which of course Ms. Murdoch was. Well, she is. Um, also, we chatted about how this piece came to be, um, the whole nature of the questionnaire, sort of like how she approached it, how she felt to get the questionnaire. And also one of my favorite parts of the interview is when Ms. Murdoch talks about what it means to be a white writer and like what decisions she makes when writing pieces as a white writer. So that was one of my favorite parts, but ultimately um, the entirety of the interview is something that I think is worth listening to. And particularly toward the end, we get right to the core of things about the nature, the essential question of the piece, which is what makes a good mother? Who, what does it mean to be a good mother and who gets to decide? So hopefully you have a great time listening to this. Um, if you do have thoughts about it, if you have questions or if something resonates with you, please let me know. You can send me an email at mark at highlighter.cc. Um, here we go. Here's the interview. Thank you so much, Sierra, for being on Article Club. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Sarai and I have tons of questions, but I get the first one, which is, so your book, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. How did that feel when you found that out? Oh yeah, that was that was a little wild. I, I don't know if you realize, I didn't realize this, but they don't tell you about the Pulitzer Prize. You don't get an email or a phone call. They just announce it to the world. And I was actually visiting my fam my parents for the first time since the pandemic, like out of range for the afternoon and um, came back in and I had probably a hundred messages on my phone when I turned my phone back on <laughs> and I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was very disoriented. So, but it was a really exciting moment. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Yellow Bird, by the way, during our discussion, we'll, we will raffle off a copy of your book, but your book is about Lissa as well, just like this article. And so given that the book was published and then now you have this article, can you talk a little bit about how did this piece come about? Yeah, you know, through the process of reporting this book, there were, of course, all these other stories that were, you know, unfolding at the same time that I was in the midst of it. So, you know, while the book was largely about Lissa and largely about her investigation of this one particular crime, which was the disappearance of a young white oil worker from her reservation, there were all these other things that were happening in her life. You know, she was becoming a person who searches for a lot of missing and murdered Indigenous women across the upper Midwest. And, and then meanwhile, she was becoming a foster mother. And so there were all these pieces of the story that couldn't possibly fit into a single book. 
And that I ended up deciding were still important because they seemed to explain her life and also so much about the world in ways that I couldn't do justice to in the book. So, you know, I actually ended up doing a story about her search for her niece who had gone missing and her how she had become someone who was sought after as, you know, an advocate on the ground searching for missing people. So I did that as a side story um, for This American Life. And then this essay came about last fall when I was doing a lot of book events. And one of the questions I kept getting asked was, you know, do you think Lissa is a good mother? (laughs) And I, you know, I was a little bit thrown off by that question. It made sense to me in some ways why people would ask it, but I also felt that so much of my book was about her being a mother and and having, you know, this really close relationship with her children, having that relationship be something that evolved over the course of that book, but also showing the ways in which the love she had for her children and the love they had for her in return and sort of this intergenerational love throughout her family was why she had survived. And so, you know, I was felt like the book was this sort of like relatively complex portrayal of that intergenerational love. And to ask, you know, is she a good mother felt very reductive in this way. And yet at the same time, it was a question I realized that people have asked, you know, generationally for a very long time, right? And that it's a it's a question that has been wielded against non-white mothers for a very long time. And I thought about the way that that has been wielded in Indigenous communities, especially when I got this questionnaire in the mail asking if I could recommend Alyssa to be a foster parent. And, you know, as I was going through and answering these questions, I was thinking about this question that I had been asked in my book events, you know, do you think Lissa is a good mother? And then I was thinking, you know, now as a white woman who has never been a mother, answering these questions for a Native woman who has been a mother to five children and thinking, okay, what is my place in this, you know, in this process, especially given this long legacy of of white individuals and institutions determining, you know, who gets to be a mother in America, through the foster care system, and even before that, through the boarding school system, which I go through in depth in the piece. Yeah, thank wow. you. Yeah, Sarai and I were talking about how forms in general are stressful, even if they're like Let, just for us. Interview forms, like filling out sandwich forms even, like sometimes <laughs> I cannot deal with. But like, I, that is a question I wanted to ask you because like the way that the questionnaire sits as like, it kind of points a magnifying glass onto the ways that white folks are Like, I thought it was really, really interesting stylistically how you were able to, like, put your feelings, but still keep the focus on Lissa and what Lissa's experience was. And I just wanted to ask, like, how you, like, the piece is a lot about, like, your reconciliations with, you know, what to write and different things. But I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Like, what the heck? Like, what do you think about that? You know, like, is there a a note we could write in the back? Like, please stop sending these forms to white people. Like, this is, because, like, even though we feel cringy about doing it and I say we as people who like not I'm not a white woman but I definitely have been asked to, to you know to speak for somebody else or to give them credit or give them some kind of validation with whatever privilege in the voice that I have so I just want to know more about that like what was that like yeah I mean I it, it's it's complicated right because there are all these back and forth power dynamics when it comes to something like that right where it was Lissa, right, who asked me, will you be the person who provides 
one of my recommendations to become mm -hmm. a foster care parent. So then I received this form in the mail, but of course she's not the person who's deciding what those questions are gonna be to determine right. whether or not she's qualified to be a mother of these children. And then, you know, I'm also not the person <laughs> like choosing those questions, but at the same time, I am putting my, myself in the heads of these people who I believe are going to be reading the answers to my mm -hmm. questions. And so I'm asking, okay, well, what do they want to hear, right? right. What are white, white notions of motherhood that inevitably Lissa is going to need to fit into, right? And she's, and then I'm talking to Lissa about my discomfort about this process. And she's saying, well, don't fit me into their box, right? Like, mm -hmm. like blow up the box, like tell them. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, you know, really? Is that really what you want me to do? <laughs> that is might this, not be like is this what the, you want in the outcome. <laughs> time that we subvert the system, you know, or is it not? And so, you know, it's that back and forth play of like her recognizing my power in this situation. You know, I write like, you know, what I don't write in the form is that I'm white and this is not, that she is a felon and I am not, that her children have gone to foster care. I have no children that, you know, and, you know, I, as a way of summary, I say, you know, what I don't write on the form is that it matters to the state. I have power over her and she's asking me to use it. Right. So it's like this, you know, the essay is about the closeness in many ways of our relationship where I know how to, I know how to answer those questions truthfully because I know her very well. I also know how to answer those questions untruthfully because I know the system pretty well. <laughs> like coming from sort of the, you know, the society and the communities that have invented this system, I, and I know it very well. And so, you know, there, like, there's all this moral questioning on my part and on her part as to what are these roles that we're going to play here and what are the roles we're going to play in relation to each other. So yeah, you know, you said, you know, you liked how the focus stayed on listen, of course, like it what this essay was about Lisa, but it was also about sort of these dynamics of our relationship within the realm of what she has now asked me to do, right? Mm -hmm. And me having to really closely examine that system now that she's asked me to do this thing. And, and just yeah, all the all the complex decisions we make when we when we do do something like that. Yeah, there's even like part of the in, in the in the essay, you say that one of the boxes is too small, like you couldn't write more, like it's almost like you were forced to write just in their box, which was very, very interesting. But you also mentioned closeness and like the closeness of the relationship that you have with Lissa, which I just have to say just came through so clearly in the piece. There's such an intimacy to your writing, which obviously is because you're close with her. But it's so interesting because like you have this form and then you're obviously stressed out about this form, but then you have this closeness and intimacy, which I am picking up, you know, as a reader, but also as a white reader too. And Harper's, I would think that, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of reader of uh, white readers. It feels like you also have to navigate the space about being a white writer for a predominantly white audience. How did you do that? Like, how did you navigate through all these different pieces? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the only real defendable place to be in a white writer, be as a white writer in this space, is to be highly transparent about your process and to be really honest about, you know, your decision making and to call out your own biases and to be constantly analyzing 
okay, why am I choosing to tell something in this way? What maybe are my blind spots? So I think some of the intimacy of maybe of my writing comes through in the sort of transparency of that process, right? Like asking Lissa, like, okay, what do you think about this? What kind of mother do you think I'll be? Like, what do you think about my answer? You know, what do you think about this? And and engaging her in the conversation and in the process that I'm going through so that, and that's purposeful, right? Because I am, I, I don't want to be creating the frame for her story, right? Like I, I am in many ways because I'm the writer. And so there's a certain amount of assumption that I can't avoid being who I am in this role. But at the same time, you know, I, I see our relationship as journalists and sources as somewhat collaborative even, right? And that was not something that I expressed so much in my book, but that now emerging out of the book, writing this essay and writing more explicitly about our relationship, I was able to explore in this deeper way. And really, you know, this questionnaire and the process of having to recommend Lissa to be a foster mother was in many ways sort of the perfect vehicle to examine that journalist source relationship. You know, I one thing I do talk a lot about is the way that as a journalist, we decide, you know, what lines to cross. You know, in journalism, it's traditionally thought that you don't befriend your sources. I I invited Lissa to a journalism class once um, where a student asked her, like, do you consider Lissa a friend or do you consider Sierra a friend? (laughs) And Lissa was like, that is such a colonized way of thinking about this relationship Mm -hmm. to sort of have to separate us out into these very distinct relationship, relational categories. And, you know, to her, sure, maybe Lisa would say we're friends and maybe I would say we're friends. But as I point out in the beginning of the essay, you know, that in it, in and of itself is a bit of a reductive way to define our relationship. You know, like I'm this person who asked her to tell me her story and then she did. And then she, we became incredibly close and she shared these secrets with me and, and, and our relationship evolved over the course of that sharing. And so our intimacy came from this deep level of trust that we both had to find in each other, you know, through that process of, of, of working on the book. And is it a friendship? I, I suppose in some ways you could simplify it and say that, but it really is something so much more complex. But at the same time, you know, I, I do talk sometimes about how in order to get to a point where I felt like, you know, Lissa was willing to share with me these highly intimate things about her life and these these really difficult things about her life that, you know, she had to trust me and, and trust that I would essentially love her unconditionally, you know, and that I, that I actually really cared about her. And that is not a line that journalists traditionally cross. You know, in this case, I don't believe it got in the way of my representing Lissa in an honest, you know, in in an honest manner in the book or in whatever other writing I've done about her. I think that it's actually helped me represent her more honestly, Mm -hmm. and it's helped her feel more comfortable with me representing her honestly, because she really trusts that the material that I do make public (laughs) um, will be placed in a context that's re- that's really meaningful so yeah yeah it seems like because it seems like often I remember reading that line like oh you know if journalists don't they're not supposed to befriend their sources and how reductive and, and colonizer that is and it seems like 
the point for journalists oftentimes is like the story, the story, the story, and everybody else is just like peripheral to that end. And I, I really feel like this was like not that. And I, I like I find myself wanting to know like the process. Like it's kind of weird to say like, oh, how do you get someone to trust you like that? And it's like, no, like you gotta be a person. Like you gotta be willing to listen. And it can't always be about like the story, the story. Or even when you were when you wrote that Lissa's daughter didn't call you back for a long time because she thought that you were just making things up about her mom or whatever that weren't true and that you weren't going to be able to put into words like the trickiness and the complications in their relationship I, I really feel what you were saying about like having the relationship be something that is not as easily defined as like a friendship and how like authentic that is not just to like the story but to the ways that you mixed in like your personal feelings about being a mother, the way that students were treated by the state and like ideas about, you know, colonizer ideas about white motherhood. Like it just all goes into this very humanizing thing, which is to tell the truth about somebody, you know, or to tell the truth about somebody's abilities, even like to be a mother, no matter what power dynamics come into play. So like, I super appreciate the nuance there and how beautifully written like the piece was, like all the way down to like the ending lines of like, back into the warmth of the I was like what like there's all there's like all kinds of things going on here so yeah I guess there's no question here just a super you know appreciation for for what's going on throughout but I did want to I did want to know more about like what what you think the connection is to there was a piece when you said it's not that kids should be taken away from their mothers they should receive like more mothers and more like grandmothers like where do you think that's gonna play in like moving forward because I know there's I can't remember where where it left off with the children in the in the story but wh- where do you think that's gonna go with Lisa moving forward yeah I mean I, I first I really appreciate all of that thank you for <laughs> feeling about the piece that you did um yeah I so right I write you know that in Lisa's family the solution to you know a mother who falls short is not to take the children away from the mother, but to give them child more mothers and fathers. And I mean that in like a really broad sense, right? That, you know, very often in a lot of the native families I spend time with, children are of great value and they're also like supported in so many ways by so many different relatives and frequently will bounce around to different relatives, like go spend summers with her grandma or like go, you know, spend a year of school off the reservation and, you know, with an aunt in Minneapolis because the school's better, you know, like there are all kinds of reasons why children might be moving around within within those families. And I also write about the way that in Lissa's family and in a lot of families I know, you know, the names we use, uncle, mother, father, grandma, grandma, grandpa, like those all mean have more to do with the person's like lived relationship to you than where exactly they are in your family tree. You know, so you could have an uncle who might not be a blood relative, but might be someone who's sort of served that role for you and your family. So yeah, I mean, I, in terms of like the situation with the children that Lisa was taking care of, I should just say they after I published or after I sent the article to press, there was like a mix up in terms of which jurisdiction was responsible for the children. And Lissa, while she had been approved by one jurisdiction, the paperwork got lost in another jurisdiction. Oh, wow. 
And it became a really big mess. And she wasn't able to get paid for like having these children. She couldn't get their medical records. It became more and more impossible for her to actually care for them in the way that she needed to. And so the children actually went to stay with their grandma, who was at that moment able to take them. And then we'll see what happens from here. But yeah, I mean, I will say, you know, this article doesn't go deeply into the machinations of the foster care system, right? That wasn't really my goal here. My goal was to more sort of explore anecdotally and historically this concept of motherhood and who gets to be a mother in America. But there is a lot of essential and really important reporting going on around the foster care system. And I would be curious to read stories, and I, I don't know what's out there, but I imagine there's there is work on sort of a potential redefinition of how we conceive of families. Like, what does a family really mean? And, you know, certainly there has been legislation, and I write about this a little bit in the in the piece, to address the fact that, you know, so many children were taken out of nuclear families and placed, you know, with white families, and rather than play, being placed with, you know, other relatives maybe more distant relatives who would be willing to take those children or even other members of their tribes who might be willing Mm. to take those children. And so the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed to to help create those avenues more and prevent children being removed from their cultural communities. But at the same time, you know, there have been a lot of legal challenges to that legislation and it hasn't always been enforced. And again, you know, the foster care are system currently conceives of a family as something very particular right. um, that that you know is is very different from the way that Liz's family and and other a lot of other families think of a family as far as like the how the United States government has sort of defined and stripped away notions of motherhood you you do talk about that history and like, how much do you feel like the general American public even sort of knows some of the basics? Like, you make sure to put it in, you know, as piece mm-hmm. of this. But it, like, for example, even like Estelle Real, who you talk about, like, I didn't, like, I'm a history major person. And like, I, mm-hmm. I had no, no idea, like, how much of this piece do you feel like you were like, hey, I need to make sure to inform a little bit, even though this piece is mostly about Lissa and mm-hmm. that is more intimate. Like, how did you make those choices? Yeah, I actually did not know about Estelle Real until I, until I started um, researching this piece. So, you know, we famously know about Richard Pratt. I think, you know, he's the name that if, if we're taught in school about the boarding school era for Native communities, then, then we'll hear about Richard Pratt, who is the founder of the Carlisle Indian Boarding School, the first institution that began taking, well, one of the first institutions that collaborated with federal agents to take children away from their families and place them in these government-run boarding schools. But then, yeah, I, I came across this woman, Estelle Real, right, who, who was essentially the bureaucrat who was creating the curriculum that was then being taught in all of these schools, and who was really institutionalizing this very racist falsehood that Native children and Native people in general are, are intellectually inferior. And, you know, that is a racist concept that has been a challenge for 
people for a very long time and and persist in a lot of these communities. And so, you know, I wanted to often in my writing, what I'm looking for are the historical roots of racist ideas, right? Like where did that originate? And, and so when I came across that and saw how specific it was to the education system and how specific it was to justifying like the separation of children from their families, right? Because very often these racist concepts are initiated because they're like a needed justify their justification for something that like you know institutions or individuals would otherwise feel guilty doing right so if you can say well we're going to teach you know these children white ways to help them assimilate into society because otherwise if we don't help them assimilate then they are not going to be able to survive us you know, then that's a justification for separating children from their parents. So, you know, I wanted to then go back in time and and really trace, okay, what was the thinking and where did that thinking originate that led now to this continual separation that we're seeing today and this continual taking of Native children from their Native mothers? And it seems like, oh my God, like the dissonance, the dissonance. People are like, oh, Native American folks are not good parents. We're going to take them, but then we're going to have them live as servants in our houses. We're going to put them in a foster care system that is like completely possible that they're going to get beat until they have a brain injury or assaulted. Like, this is fine. This is fine with us, you know, like how, but we can't have people who have been taking care of the land for generations, like raise their own kids. And like, I feel like the justification and the ways that bureaucrats and different people in policymaking are able to codify like such ideas is something that's super interesting. But when it comes to like untangling those things, like with acts and with other pieces of legislation that are supposed to counteract those, it like doesn't work. Like, oh, she was gonna, like, Lissa was gonna be a foster mom, but her paperwork got lost and now she can't get paid. Like. You guys organize the entire stripping away of children from their parents. You can't get the paperwork to rectify this situation. Like, it's, it just seems so... The ways that the system continuously builds on itself and sticks to other things and, and creates these, these systems where you couldn't even get free if you tried. Like, there is a bureaucrat somewhere who's going to read the form and say no. You know, like, that is a... It's so dissonance-causing to me that that's able... To, that's able to happen and then like folks are called angry and stuff for 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 you know like it just seems to me it seems to me and even writing about this seems so confusing like that's another reason I want to commend you for writing about this in a way that makes sense because like I in my head I'm like spinning like I can't even understand I can't understand I, I can't I can't fathom that and so like to have your piece go through and talk about like the history I'm really interested to hear more about who was it her great-grandmother who was like the first in her line and the way that you wrote about generations of mothers having their kids taken away and how this it's now been you know choice and shame and all those different things like are wrapped up it's just super interesting how all avenues lead to Native American people still getting the like the worst end of it. I think you're exactly right dissonance hypocrisy denial right it's like there are a lot of names for it and I, I think it's really important to recognize that yeah, that dissonance, right? That there were these sort of racist justifications for policy. And the policy, okay, the policy <laughs> all comes back to gaining access to native land, right? Mm -hmm. So like, 
all of these policies, you know, the taking of children, the assimilation of children, the putting of people onto reservations, the taking of people off reservations, termination acts, like, you know, all the policies that I mentioned in the story and all most sort of federal policies up until a certain point were created to create more land that was accessible to white people. And so, and I don't go into that in the piece. It's something, you know, it's something that goes unsaid in the story because I was focused very much on motherhood there, right? So, you know, the the point, right, was not to like give these children a better life. No. (laughs) You know, if, if that was the point obviously there would be a very different outcome, right? The point was was something much more theoretical, much higher up, much more driven by a desire for native land. Um, wow. But, but yeah, it, you know, in the process, there was this dissonance, right? This justification and then the actual outcome of those policies that were the outcome being very different from what the just justification originally was. And, and then, you know, I part of the reason why I bring in Lissa's great, great, great grandmother, Stestacata, who you mentioned, who is because she's sort of an example, a certain way of motherhood that was actively destroyed and that was mm. lost. And not entirely, I don't want to say it was lost because I think, you know, there, there is a strong matriarchy <laughs> present yeah. in Melissa's family and in, I'm sure, many, many other families. And so it wasn't lost, but it was you know, purposefully damaged. And so Sestacata was, you know, one of the first, she was one of the midwives of Mm. the Arikara tribe. And so I read about the ways she was very well versed in the plants of the Missouri bottomlands and would help, you know, treat women for postpartum bleeding and for help induce their childbirth. And, you know, I, so I write about in that say the way that she was, you know, sort of ushering these women into motherhood at the same time that the government was at that moment taking their motherhood away. And her own son was actually taken and placed in at the Carlisle Indian boarding school. So, so yeah, there are all these layers, right? And I wanted to show sort of the way that that has changed through generations. You know, I think it's also important to, like I said, you know, like that, matrilineal line was not lost right like I'm writing about a whole lineage of mothers and Lissa's family who have managed to hold on to their motherhood right like Lissa's own mother I write was at one point convinced to give up her motherhood convinced to give Lissa up for adoption and then realized wait I want to do this I want my daughter back and took Lissa back you know and so in many ways it was these generations of women sort of reclaiming their motherhood and I see Lissa sort of doing that in the course of this essay as well. And, and certainly Shauna, Lissa's daughter, was doing that as well. Yeah, you, you talk about the layers. There's so many layers. And also you talk about dissonance. And it was interesting, after this whole part about this lineage and history, then you bring yourself you know, into mm. the piece. Having made a decision, you get this form after making the decision. You're thinking about your own motherhood. And I have to say, I felt a little bit of dissonance at the beginning. I was like, why is she bringing the, I don't want, I don't want this story <laughs> right. And of course I'm a man and like, I, I need to do it. But like, but then as I kept on reading, I said, yeah, it makes sense. And it's because of how you wrote it. And of course, I don't know the highest level of writing and how you achieve that, but <laughs> obviously you probably had to make a decision about 
if to put yourself back in and then when. So the question is like, like if and when, how did you do that? Yeah, I mean, part of the motivation for the essay was that I had, you know, received this questionnaire literally uh, a few days after um, I ended a 10 year relationship because I want to be a mother. So I was in this like really intense headspace (laughs) thinking about motherhood and certainly thinking about my own potential motherhood or maybe like giving up that possibility. And so I, so yeah, I, I mean, that was very much in my thinking as I was writing this essay. And in fact, I wrote a version of this essay where I bring that in much earlier on, like in the first paragraph and then return to it. And it was uh, through discussions with an editor at Harper's that we decided to move that down. And I, I think that was a good decision. Otherwise mm-hmm. people would have just been like waiting around for it and wondering, is this what this essay is about? <laughs> and it wasn't what it was about, mm-hmm. but it did feel important for deepening the essay. You know, one reason is that, and I write this in the beginning, you know, I say, you know, Lissa is honest like that. She's more honest than I am. Her honesty is political because it has stakes. And so I think, you know, part of it was me feeling like I revealed everything intimate about Lissa's life. And I, it's time for me to sort of say where I am with this question, right? And, but then also, you know, Lissa was one of my main supports in that really difficult period of time. And so I'm able to sort of circle back to our relationship through that. And, you know, ultimately in the end of the essay, it's about trying to figure out, well, what is motherhood actually, right? And, and you know, uh, I come, I don't want to ruin the essay for people, right? But it's like, it is about a certain kind of relationship, right? A certain, like, deeply loving relationship where you can depend on a person to want to keep you alive, you know, to sort of keep you going in either a metaphorical or a literal sense. And so listen, I have that exchange toward the end of um, the piece. And yeah, (laughs) does that make more sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I was like, yeah, this is an interesting turn of events. (laughs) But then when when you started, like when Lissa was like, well, I don't know, like, I've never seen you like do any of these things. And like the fact that you guys had such a close, close relationship and she could still say like, I don't know, like, I I don't know if you'd be a good mother because you haven't done any motherly things in my presence. And that is like, it, it goes to show like how kind of like the reasons that she asked you to do the questionnaire in the first place, like she has a really, really, really full understanding of like what systems are in place, you know, and like what people I think like expect when they're asking a question, like you might've been asking for like support, like, please tell me I'm going to be a good mom. And she's like, no, I'm not going (laughs) to, I'm not going to do that. Like, like you were saying, like you wrote, like her honesty has political stakes because if she's like, oh yeah, you'd be great. You'd be great. That's kind of empty and flat, you know, it's like, but she was, well, you guys have the relationship such that she was willing in a tough time to say, actually, I don't know. Like, you're great. You're great. You know, <laughs> but as far as that goes, and it, I just, I just, I feel like the, like the piece kind of revealed that like complexity. And that's why mm-hmm. I really appreciate like the expansiveness of the term friend that you get to see here is because like, it's really hard to be a, a friend. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's so true, right? She like, I'm, I'm like, okay, what kind of mother do you think I'll be? And she's like, how do I know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that was important because it, 
it both revealed some a certain dynamic in our relationship right in which like our relationship wasn't entirely even like I was the person peering into her life she wasn't the person peering into mine she you know and yet she knew a lot she knew me very well but she didn't she hadn't seen me in my life so she didn't know how I took care of other people and I think you know her answer base which basically is like well, you're a good person, but being a good person doesn't make you a good mother is like, was, was really important. Right. Cause I think (laughs) there is this sort of, you know, and and then that begs the question, like, okay, what is a good person? Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yeah, she flips this question of like, what is good Mm -hmm. on its head? And she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to say what is good based on these, you know, very pragmatic aspects of motherhood. Right. Do you change a diaper? Right. (laughs) Like, how do you take care of your elders? Like, do you know how to work with a baby? But she, you know, but she, what she refused to do, right, is to be like, well, because you're the, because you have these sort of like, you know, subjective qualities, therefore I'm going to translate those into you being a good mother, Mm -hmm. which is the thing that white society has been doing for so long mm-hmm. saying oh because you do all these things or look all these ways that feel comfortable to us therefore we believe you're going to be a good mother mm-hmm. right and so she refused to sort of participate in that in that thing yeah i love that too yeah that's great mm-hmm. well Sarai and I just really want to thank you. You've been so generous and thoughtful with your time. If it's okay, we have one last question for you. You touched a little bit on it a few minutes ago, but it's the end of the piece and and Mm -hmm. potentially like one of the big messages of the piece. You write at the end, I can't say what makes a good mother, but I know what we keep each other alive for. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it goes back a first a little bit to what I was describing earlier, which is that I, which has to do with my motivation for writing the piece in the first place, right? That I had observed so much about Lissa's life and I had wondered about, you know, I had wondered why she was able to survive so much violence and so much trauma in her life. Like in some ways she seemed just really lucky, but in other ways, And over the course of getting to know her, I began to feel that maybe one of the reasons why she had survived so much was because she was surrounded by so much love in her family and like love by her mother and her grandmother and her extended relatives and love by her children, who in many cases sort of swooped in and saved the day, which I I write about the way that Shauna saved her once in this piece. And so, and, and then also, you know, I, what I didn't, what there wasn't any space for on the, you know, on the questionnaire was something I write about at the very end of my essay, which is all these like incredible moments of joy that I witnessed Alyssa in with her children and all the reasons why I knew she was (laughs) an incredible mother and not a good mother in the way that we ask that question, but just someone who was so capable of really genuine love and connection with her children and so you know those moments at the end I was like 
you know, that, that is, <laughs> that's why we live, right? That's why we, that's why we become mothers. That's why we save our mothers. That's why we, you know, sort of maintain these motherly connections to people is for those moments, for that joy. So yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I meant. <laughs> that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sierra, so much. Uh, Sarai, do you have any, any last words or questions? I haven't had a question this whole time, Mark. <laughs> no questions. <laughs> just random, just random like word, like thought bubbles. But no, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Well, thanks. I so appreciate your questions and thought bubbles. They were <laughs> great. So <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you again, Sierra. Yeah, thanks. Be in touch. All right, it's Mark back here again, and I just wanted to thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to Ms. Murdoch. Uh, Most importantly, I want to thank Ms. Murdoch for generously sharing your time and thoughts with us and with all of Article Club. I deeply, deeply am grateful, so thank you. Once again, Article Clubbers, you can please reach out if you want to at mark at highlighter.cc, especially if you have never attended a discussion. There's hundreds of you out there who are part of Article Club and you are welcome at any time to join a discussion. So let me know if you're sort of interested, but you have any questions or any concerns about participating. That's about it, and I hope you have a great week. Thanks, everybody.